you have your Bibles, you can turn with me in them to Amos 5. Our final sermon in Amos 5, before moving into Amos 6, which will be uh, the topic of next week. Throughout the course of Amos 5, we have seen God, through Amos, exhort the people that they not turn to their centers of religious worship in the day of declaration of judgment. And this, uh, at the beginning, was maybe a little bit of a surprise. Wait a minute, uh, you're declaring judgment and uh, God, and, and then when, when you, we hear of this judgment, you say, don't run to your centers of worship. Don't run to your, uh, your, your places of religious zeal. However, when we understand the context of Amos, and when we understand the nature of Israel uh, at this time in history, it perhaps does not surprise us. For we've talked through the nature of worship in the northern kingdom of Israel. We've acknowledged that their centers of worship, namely Bethel and Gilgal, as mentioned here in Amos 5, were, for many years, uh, had been places of, of tremendous spiritual compromise, of compromised worship. Places where, in the name of God, the nation pursued their own ideas, their own priorities, and the trappings of religion in order to appease their conscience, or attempt, in a sense, to, to force God into regarding uh, their requests through their religious zeal. And we are perhaps not surprised when we find that these petitions would fall upon deaf ears, because we can trace the blatantly false nature of worship in northern Israel, all the way back to its roots, in fact. And what I'd like to do as we begin our time in Amos 5 this evening is actually do that, to trace those roots back to uh, the the beginning, well, to trace the worship back to its roots, put it that way, and to see what this worship system looked like in the day that it was instituted. So the false worship of northern Israel can be traced back to its very first king, following the civil war which the nation uh, of Israel had gone through that split it into two kingdoms. These events happened in the early days of the the, the reign of King Solomon's son, Solomon's son's name being Rehoboam. In that time, there was a man named Jeroboam. And Jeroboam, because of Solomon's sin, because Solomon is a man whose heart was not perfect before the Lord, as was David his father, the Bible says that Solomon, uh, because of that, would have the kingdom rent from him. However, God says he would keep or he would would allow a, a singular tribe to remain with the house of David for David's sake. Turns out that two tribes ended up staying with the house of David. That would be the the tribes of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. And that for the sake of Solomon's father, David, that the entire kingdom was not stripped from Solomon. We think of Solomon as a grand king, of a great king, and indeed he did many wonderful things. And and he even wrote scripture, right? We we believe that Ecclesiastes and most of the Proverbs uh, were written at his hand. And yet he had many years of his reign that were, were, were very, very wicked Years, uh, years where his heart had been utterly turned away from the Lord, his God. And uh, because of the consequence of that, the kingdom was rent from him. And in that time, when God had promised this, uh, God sent the prophet to anoint Jeroboam as the king of the northern tribe. Solomon hears of this. He wants to kill Jeroboam. And so Jeroboam flees to Egypt until the death of Solomon. After the death of Solomon, Jeroboam comes back. And along with various representatives of, uh, of the northern tribes of Israel, he came to petition the young man, Rehoboam, to lighten the load which his father Solomon had placed upon the citizens of the nation. 
Now, once again, we regard Solomon as one of the truly great kings in Israel. As a matter of fact, history regards Solomon as one of the greatest kings of any nation that has ever lived. Presiding over one of the times of, of wealth, unlike uh, many that we have heard of throughout the course of the known world, uh, within the scope of his kingdom. And as he presided over this uh, golden age of Israel, it did, in fact, come at a cost to the nation. Second Chronicles 8 tells us that he did not use the citizens of Israel uh, in, in a direct servitude role. He would use the, those that were not citizens of Israel, those who were, were, were from other nations or, or those who were vassals of the state of Israel. He would use them to be kind of the slaves in order to do the work. But he did still conscript nearly every person in Israel at some point within the scope of, of his reign to serve in the military, to become captains of his chariots and of his horsemen, uh, to become supervisors over his building projects, to work uh, within his palace to be caretakers of his assets. And of course, we know that Solomon's assets were quite great. He needed a lot of people in order to do that job. In fact, 2 Chronicles 9.25 tells us that Solomon had 4,000 stalls of horses and chariots and 12,000 horsemen. So if you think of what it would take to take care of 4,000 horses and chariots, uh, uh, beyond just the 12,000 men who drove them, the horsemen, we're talking about a lot of people, and that's just for the horses, much less all of the building projects, much less all of that, the palaces and such that he already had, much less all of the cities where he had people in them. And so he can script a great number of people for these roles, and the burden on the people was actually quite heavy. They were very wealthy. They were very successful. It was relatively peaceful, at least compared to David's reign. But the people carried a great burden in those years. So they came to Rehoboam and they said, we will serve you and your posterity forever if you will lighten the load. And many of you know the story. Rehoboam consults with the elder, the people that were, were, were the advisors to his father Solomon. And his advisors say, yeah, you need to do this. You need to lighten the load. And then he consults with the advisors that are his own age, the people that grew up in Solomon's, in, in the wealth of Solomon's kingdom, who did not see David's kingdom, who, who, who knew nothing but Solomon's wealth and Solomon's glory. And they said, uh, no, don't do that. Tell them that, that, that you're going to make the load harder on them. Tell them that you're going to rule with a heavier hand than your father. And we read of that account in 1 Kings 12 and 2 Chronicles 7. His response was to reject their appeal, that he would be harder still upon them than his father ever was. And with this declaration of severity, the northern tribe said, what have we to do with David? We're out of here. And they, they seceded from the nation of Israel, following Jeroboam as their new king. Of course, there was a civil war that ensued. Jeroboam ended up effectively winning that civil war, and the nation was split in two. Jeroboam establishing what we have been calling throughout Amos the northern kingdom of Israel, and Rehoboam presiding over what we recognize to be called the southern kingdom of Judah, which remained loyal to the Davidic line along with the tribe of Benjamin. Now, we pick up our reading... I'd like us to read a little bit of this. We pick up our reading in 1 Kings 12, verse 25, after Jeroboam had successfully established his kingly authority over northern Israel. And so we read this. 
The Bible says in verse 25 of 1 Kings 12, Then Jeroboam built Shechem in Mount Ephraim and dwelt therein and went out from thence and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. If this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam, the king of Judah. Whereupon the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he set the one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. And this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan. And he made an house of high places, and made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi. And Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month, on the fifteenth day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah. And he offered upon the altar, so did he in Bethel, sacrificing under the calves that he had made, and he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. So he offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel the fifteenth day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised of his own heart, and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel, and he offered upon the altar and burnt incense. So we find in this account that Jeroboam's motivation for setting up these images in Bethel and in Dan, was that he was fearful of a reunification of the kingdom through their shared religious devotion in the temple, which, of course, was still in the nation of Judah. So he sought to solve this problem. He said, if, if the people are still unified around a singular religious system and they're unified around the temple, then eventually and inevitably they're going to say, look, we serve the same God. We serve at the same temple. We all come to the same temple to worship. Why is it that we're two kingdoms again? And they're going to reunify. Jeroboam says, can't have that. This is my kingdom now. So he made a plan. The Bible says he set up high places. He rejected the Levitical priesthood and he made priests of the very lowest of the people. He effectively converted the nation back to the apostate hybrid worship system that began in the wilderness in the days of Exodus. Recall in the days of Exodus, while Moses was up on the mount, Aaron fashioned a calf out of gold. And he said, These be thy gods, O Israel, that brought thee out of the, out of the land of Egypt. Jeroboam in, invokes the exact same tradition. He makes a golden calf. He puts one in the very north end in Dan. He puts one in the very south end in Bethel. And he says, These be thy gods, O Israel. And then in Bethel, of course, is the place where we see the central, uh, centralized point of this worship. It is there that they offered sacrifices upon the altar to these calves. It was there that he established this, this priesthood um, from the lowest of the people. And when God in Amos 5 tells the nation not to turn back to Bethel, it is this system of worship that he's rejecting. A system of worship that he had rejected from the very first day it was established in Israel. And if you want evidence of that rejection, you say, well, pastor, I see the rejection here in Amos. Was it truly rejected in that day too? Absolutely it was. And if you read 1 Kings 13, I'll, I'll leave that to you to do. But if you read 1 Kings 13, you will find that God was very vehement in his rejection of Jeroboam's attempt to create this hybrid worship system. So this is the context to understand why it would be that God would tell the nation in Amos 5, don't go to Bethel, don't go to Gilgal, because their efforts toward the religious would be efforts toward a system that was false to begin with. And for we who have the word of God and seek unto it with all of our hearts, 
it's likely that we would not necessarily see ourselves in the religious false worship of Israel. Uh, maybe that is, is something that we ought to contemplate in our hearts. Is uh, Do we have such a false worship system as well? But generally speaking, uh, as we talked about this morning, we've put a framework in place by which we feel relatively confident that we are uh, recognizing clearly the, the message of the Word of God and seeking to humble ourselves before it. A worship defined by a direct rejection of God's prescribed system and embracing a false system which God had, had overtly rejected would not be a problem that we would necessarily see in our own religious tradition. We might see it in, in certain other ones that we could point to, but n- not necessarily in our own. However, when we see this idea in Amos 5 of God rejecting worship, that is not necessarily something that is outside of the bounds of value for us. Even we who would seek with all of our heart to align ourselves with the Word of God as it's taught and as it's given to us. And that's what we're going to see in verses 21 through 27 in these last verses of Amos 5 today. What we're going to see is a... We're going to see God invoke language that when we compare Scripture with Scripture is not just a warning to those who are in a false worship system, but it's also a warning to those who are in a true worship system but are worshiping in a, are, are engaging in that worship in a manner that is false. So there is the idea of engaging maybe even very genuinely in a false worship system But then there is a way to engage in a worship system that is true in a false manner. And that's a warning that might resonate a little bit more with us. That we have a system that we believe is right before the Lord as it relates to the manner in which we do the things we do. But the question for you this evening is, are you doing it in a way that is false? So let's go ahead and read in Amos 5. And then we'll develop this thought process together. Verses 21 through 27, the Bible says this. God speaking through Amos, he says, I hate, I despise your feast days, and I will not smell your solemn assemblies. Though ye offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them. Neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts. Take thou away from me the noise of thy songs. For I will not hear the melody of thy vials. But let judgment run down as waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. Have ye offered unto me sacrifices and offerings in the wilderness forty years, O house of Israel? But ye have borne the tabernacle of your Moloch and Kayan, your images, the star of your God, which ye made to yourself. Therefore will I cause you to go into captivity beyond Damascus, saith the Lord whose name is the God of hosts. As we read through this text, we find the language God uses to describe their religious devotion to be quite startling. He tells them he despises their feast days. He refuses to smell their solemn assemblies. And that's kind of a strange statement. I refuse to smell your solemn assemblies. But it is connected to an idea going very, very far back. As a matter of fact, going all the way back to Cain and Abel, We perhaps best understand the idea in the early days of Scripture, however, from the days of Noah. Recall that after the flood, 
Noah builds an altar and offers a burnt sacrifice upon that altar. And in Genesis chapter 8, verse 21, the Bible says this, And the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. So the idea here is not directly that God enjoys the smell of burning flesh. That, that, that's, that's not directly what it is. We, we know that God is not a man in the, in the standard sense. And, and so the, even the idea of God uh, tasting and smelling and, and, and doing those things that men do is, is a little bit outside the bounds of, uh, of, of uh, scriptural clarity. However, God does often anthropomorphize himself, right? He, he, he uses things that humans can connect themselves to in order to help us understand an idea. And the idea that, that this sacrifice of burning flesh was a sweet savor, he smelled a sweet savor, is that this act of worship that Noah did in that day, where Noah acknowledged God as worthy of, of worship in the day that God enacted this great justice upon the world through the flood that this act of worship pleased the Lord. So it wasn't necessarily the burning itself. It was what the burning represented. It was the heart and the manner and the obedience and the honor that that burning represented on that day that pleased the Lord. And this is the idea that God carries into Amos. When God says he refused to smell their sacrifices. He, he refused to accept that worship. And so he calls them to take away the noise of their singing. And instead he says, let judgment run down like waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. He says, you really want to worship me? Don't do it through the burning of animals. Don't do it through the singing. Don't do it through the, 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 the pouring out of oil. Do it through judgment and righteousness. Align your hearts with me. And we'll see that as a theme throughout the course of this evening. God then highlights the inconsistency of their worship. For they have not only built tabernacles in the name of God. These be thy gods, O Israel, that, that led thee out of Egypt, calling them the Lord. But God says they also built tabernacles unto Moloch and Kion. Moloch is alternatively called in the Bible Molech. The distinction of this false god, as we see it throughout the scriptures, was the idea that he demanded or that the people engaged in a practice called passing their children through the fire. And this would have been a gruesome process that is, um, without controversy, child sacrifice. An abomination before the Lord and one which compelled tremendous judgment upon those who practiced it, including Solomon according to the scriptures. Kion is found only here in Amos chapter 5 in our Bibles. The name means statue. To that end, it might actually not be a word for a direct God. It may be a word simply for gods in general, that they erected statues to their gods. However, our King James translators, in that they did not translate the word, but instead they just transliterated the word, uh, tells us that they thought it was a direct name for a false god in the land. The closest possible analog that uh, I could find, at least in history, would have been an Assyrian god named Kayamanu. And this would eventually become the Roman god of Saturn, 
just another god that was in the land. But it is interesting that it would be an Assyrian god because the Assyrians were the ones who would eventually come in and overtake Israel in the day of their judgment. And so it may not be all that surprising that they had already assimilated their gods. So God tells the nation that for these abominations, he would send them into captivity beyond Damascus, which was the capital of Syria, and into, as we know, Assyria, which was the nation that conquered them. Because he is God alone. And he is the God of hosts. Now, I've mentioned already the reason why we might be tempted not to feel deeply connected to this pronouncement of judgment. And to this point, you probably don't feel deeply connected to this pronouncement of judgment. The false worship system Israel had was egregious. We might be able to look out at the society in which we live and see it. Child sacrifice is one of the staples of our society today. And so it would not necessarily be surprising as we look out at the world around us to say, yeah, they may be worshiping in God's name, but then they are performing child sacrifices and they're, they're, they're pursuing other gods. And they may, they may use Jesus or they may use the God of the Bible as some sort of prop that they prop up in order to make themselves feel better about what they're doing. But they are in absolute apostasy and wickedness. And we could look out at others who would agree with such ideas and we could say, yes, they should be reading Amos chapter 5 and they should connect to Amos chapter 5, but, but not necessarily us. However, this is not the only context where God says such dramatic things about worship, where God so dramatically rejects the worship of his people. We might be successful at convincing ourselves that the strength of this language in no way applies to what we do at Legacy Baptist Church or how we conduct ourselves in worship if we only read Amos 5. But the problem is, Amos 5 is not the only place where we find such things in our Bible. In fact, the theme of God rejecting the worship of His people is found pervasively in the Old Testament. I'm only going to give you a few this evening, but if you ever want a whole list, I've got quite a list written in my Bible of places where God does this. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 15. Isaiah writing to the nation of Judah this time, to those that had the temple to those that had not erected a false god, a golden calf, but they had the temple directly before them. They still worshiped through the Levitical priests of Aaron. Notice what Isaiah says to them in this day. Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. Already starting out pretty harsh. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread in my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when ye make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Isaiah cries to a metaphorical Sodom and Gomorrah, who in this instance, as I said, is the nation of Judah, the nation which still had the temple. But the message of God is the same. 
He tells them that their sacrifices to him have no purpose, that they, yeah, he is full with the blood of bullocks and of lambs and of he goats, that their offerings were vain and were empty, and he hated their traditions. Traditions, by the way, which he had put in place. Traditions which he had prescribed for them in the law of Moses. We know what, God would, what, what would cause God to reject the worship of Bethel. Because there was a golden calf erected there. Because there were temples unto Moloch and unto Kayan there. We know what would cause God to reject the worship of northern Israel. But what would cause God to hate the very precepts which he had put in place by way of tradition for the nation of Judah to follow? And as we continue to trace the theme, we see what it was that caused God to be so vehement against these religious acts. In Zechariah chapter 7, verses 4 through 6, the Bible says this, Then came the word of the Lord of hosts unto me, saying, Speak unto all the people of the land, and to the priests, saying, When ye fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month, even those seventy years, did ye at all fast unto me, even to me? And when ye did eat, and when ye did drink, did not ye eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Zechariah is written post-exilic, after the 70 years of the exile. Within those 70 years, there had been some things that had been erected among the Judites, those that had been taken into captivity in Babylon. One of the things that had been established was a fast, a mourning in the fifth and the seventh month. Seventh month is a big month for Israel. It's the month where they have Rosh Hashanah. It's the month where they, where they already do much fasting. The fifth month, this fast was for the destruction of Israel, for the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. And these were fasts of mourning. In other words, they were supposed to afflict their souls because God had seen fit to judge them, which obviously meant, according to the covenant, that they had been sinful. As a matter of fact, if they'd go back to Deuteronomy and read the last chapters of Deuteronomy, they would have found God promised this very thing, that if they persisted in their rebellion against Him, then they would have been brought to a place inevitably where He would send them into captivity. But notice the question that God asks them. When you fasted, when you did all of that fasting, when you did all of that mourning in the fifth and the seventh month, was there ever a time where you actually fasted unto me? Was there ever a time you actually mourned to me? Did you mourn for the loss of Jerusalem or did you mourn for your sin? Did you mourn for the loss of your leaders or did you mourn because of the thing that caused God to do this in the, in the first place. And by implication, the idea is, you didn't mourn for me. You didn't mourn for righteousness. You didn't mourn for your sin. You mourned for your loss. You mourned for the loss of Jerusalem. And then he asks about eating and drinking, feast days, when you did eat and when you did drink. Did you not do it for yourselves? Did you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Is your mourning the mourning of repentance for the circumstances that necessitated the captivity? Or is your mourning an attempt to justify your own victimhood or self-righteousness? 
Is your feasting a rejoicing in the Lord or a rejoicing in yourself? And in this, we begin to gain a perspective, a perspective about worship, by which we recognize that just because a man is pursuing religious devotion, just because a man is pursuing religious devotion in a manner prescribed by the true and living God, does not mean that his heart is with the Lord, does not mean that his motives are correct. And if we take God's meaning here, then we understand that God regards with great importance the reason for our devotion, the reason for our observances, not just the observances themselves. We find a similar theme in Hosea, chapter 6, verses 4 through 7. This, one, this is where we begin to get a little more familiar. Hosea 6, 6 should be quite familiar to many of you. He says, O Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? Ephraim being the primary tribe of the northern tribes of Israel. So that would be northern Israel. O Judah, what shall I do unto thee? Judah being the primary tribe of the southern kingdom of Judah. And so he's speaking both to the northern and the southern kingdoms at this point in Hosea. He says, For your goodness is as a morning cloud, and as the early dew it goeth away. Therefore have I hewed them by the prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and thy judgments are as the light that goeth forth. For I desired mercy, and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. But they, like men, have transgressed the covenant. There have they dealt treacherously against me. So God speaks to the north the south, and the south in Hosea, and he describes their goodness as morning clouds, as early dew that goes away. The picture is of clouds that look like they're going to contain rain, but they don't. I remember this very well back when I was growing up in Colorado. It wasn't in the morning, though. Uh, growing up in Colorado, uh, in the spring, it was about 3 o'clock in the afternoon every day. And at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon every day, you would see dark clouds gather uh, on, in the foothills, uh, just on the, the east side of the mountains there, the Rocky Mountains. And every day you'd see those dark clouds form, and it really, really looks like you're going to get some rain, which if you uh, know out in the west, that's an important thing. You don't get a whole lot of rain out west. So every day that it looked like rain was an exciting thing uh, because you were going to be able to see the grass green up a little bit and, 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 and maybe your garden was going to get a little bit of water and those sorts of things. And so every day you'd see those clouds come and then every day about an hour later they'd all just dissipate. But there was no rain. They look like something. They look like they have substance. They look like they have potential. They look like they have something of value, but then they don't. And the second picture here is of the dew, the water that rests upon the leaves of trees and of plants. And it, it rests upon those leaves. And you look at those leaves in the morning and you see that morning dew and you say, wow, that's really wonderful because we need that dew. Uh, it would be really nice if that water could be absorbed, but that water is not absorbed. That water rests upon the, the stems of the grass and on the leaves. And then when the sun comes up, the sun evaporates it all right off and it's gone. And it doesn't actually water the plants. It evaporates off of them. It looks like it has substance, but it ends up being empty, substanceless. The image of effectiveness and usefulness, the image of effectiveness and usefulness, but no true usefulness, 
no true value. So that God says in Hosea 6, verse 6, I desired mercy, not sacrifice. See, Israel and Judah, they were very good at giving sacrifices. And they'd go, particularly for Judah, they'd go to the temple and they'd put, give the sacrifice to the Lord. And then they would turn away from that sacrifice and they would exercise an unmerciful heart toward everyone in their midst. There was no mercy. And they would bring their burnt offerings. And they would give their burnt offerings. And they would do their traditional worship duties. But they would not seek to know the Lord. And God says, I desired mercy, not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. And now we're getting down to it. Now we're beginning to see what God means when he told them that he despised their feast days. It wasn't that God did not want worship. It is never that God does not want worship. God certainly doesn't want false worship. We know that to be true, and that's pretty plain and obvious. God does not want a person doing things that he has not asked of, of them. God does not want uh, people worshiping uh, in his name, but doing things that are abominable to him. And again, that's not, probably not your problem today. That's probably not my problem today. That in the name of God, we are doing things that the Bible says are abominable. That's not really our temptation within our church tradition. But what about the other way? What about not, not, not false worship, but what about right worship with a false heart? That's a little bit more dangerous for us, isn't it? That's a little bit more something that we are susceptible to. That we would reject mercy and give the burnt offering. That we would reject the knowledge of the Lord and do the sacrifice. Not literally, of course. No one's burning animals in here. But that we would come together in a corporate show of regular worship, of the kind of worship that the church has from generation to generation done as a means by aligning with the Word of God and lifting up the Lord as we would desire to do, but we do so with a heart that is far from Him. That we will come on a Sunday and we will get in the trappings of worship and we will sing the sounds of worship and we will sit and listen uh, to the Word of God and yet we will go and our hearts will be far from Him. And we will come with a heart that is far from him and we will leave with a heart that is far from him, but we will pacify our conscience in that we have done the thing that God expects us to do when in fact we are doing nothing that God expects us to do. And though God regards the worship of his people and he loves the worship of his people, he does not love worship that is false. As a matter of fact, it's quite dishonoring to him. So these men and these women, they were doing their sacrifices, but they weren't actually worshiping. They were attempting to manipulate God into blessing them in, in spite of their rebellious hearts. They had convinced themselves that as long as they do the outward things that God has asked them to do, that he's not going to care what's in their heart. 
that as long as they're doing the things outwardly that are going to pacify those that are around them, that God will be satisfied with that and that God will be forced to continue to bless them because they're doing the things outwardly, even though in their heart is rebellion, in their heart is disobedience, in their heart is selfishness, in their heart is deceit, in their heart is lies, in their heart is pride, in their heart is resentments. They oppress the poor, but at least they're making their sacrifices. They rejected the knowledge of God, but at least that animal is burning on the altar. And what God is saying is this. Outward expressions of religious devotion are exactly that, Christian. Outward expressions. The things that we do in here on any given Sunday or midweek, They are intended to be outward expressions to guide our hearts into a place of worship to collectively lift our voices and our minds and our hearts and our our determination unto the Lord in obedience to Him. But it's only as good as the heart with which we do it. God forbid that you and I would think that we can pacify God or trick God or manipulate God simply through outward expressions of religious devotion with a heart that is far from Him, with no interest in God's Word or true worship or submission or humility or obedience, yet think that we're going to be just fine with God on the basis of the fact that we are doing the external things that Christians do. But that's not how God works. And perhaps the best and most familiar expression of this concept is in the Old Testament at least, is found in Micah chapter 6. Hosea 6.6, very important. Micah 6.6, very important as well. So we read, Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings and calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with Thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee? But to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. God gave commandments regarding Old Testament religious expression. God gave commandments about burnt offerings. God gave commandments about the blood of rams and about the anointing with oil. But not a single one of these outward expressions is effective in my life, in itself, unto the pleasing of God. Of course, none of them are because we're no longer under the Jewish law, but none of them were effective in the life of the Jew in itself. Not effective in their lives, not effective even unto true worship. What God actually desired was obedience. Was obedience to the weightier matters of the law. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with thy God. And then here's what happens. As I live before God out of the expressions of my love for Him, 
by doing justly and loving mercy and walking humbly with my God, then I bring my worship before him and I say, Lord, as I have done these things, now I give the outward expressions of worship to you and it is a sweet smelling savor because it is a reflection of the truth of my heart before God that I am extolling him. I have already extolled him in the manner in which I have lived my life before, uh, before him secretly. Now I am extolling him in the manner in which I am worshiping him publicly. Therefore, the public worship that I am engaged in is consistent with the private manner in which I live before him, and that integrity of heart pleases God. God desires a heart that loves him. God desires a heart eager to obey him. God desires a heart that is listening. God desires a heart that is humble. He has showed thee what is good. He has showed thee what the Lord requires. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with thy God. And when we are in that state of submission, then the outward expressions of worship not only flow naturally, but then they are, again, aligned with the heart, have integrity, and are therefore what God is actually seeking. Jesus taught the same idea in the context of the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23. Verses 25 and 26, Jesus said this, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. So Jesus gives a picture here. And he tells the Pharisees they were like cups or like plates, which were clean on the outside but filthy on the inside, particularly a cup there. And Jesus' ex exhortation to these men was this. Get the inside clean, and once the inside is clean, then the outside will be clean also. Now, we regard here the limitations of this exhortation. No man can clean up his own insides. That's what God does. That's what God has exhorted us to, to flee to him for. That was the whole point, in fact, of Jesus' exhortation, was that they were to hear that and then say, well, I can't clean up the inside. And then they'd have to come to Christ to do for them what they could not do for themselves. But the idea that Jesus is espousing is this. I can look clean on the outside while being filthy on the inside. And Christian, that's very true, isn't it? You can look plenty clean on the outside while being utterly filthy on the inside. But if the inside is clean, the outside will inevitably become clean. See, because if the inside of you is clean, Christian, then there's no part of you that's going to want to naturally be, be unclean on the outside because the inside is clean. If the inside is clean, the outside is going to reflect what the inside is. If the inside is dirty... You can still clean yourself up on the outside. Now, you're not living in integrity. You have to go out of your way to look clean on the outside because that's not who you really are. But you can do that. You can be clean on the outside while dirty on the inside. You can't be clean on the inside without it naturally making you clean on the outside. To that end, it's fruitless for us to prioritize cleaning the outside we prioritize cleaning the inside. 
And this is what God has always desired. An inside-out relationship with Him. Religion focuses upon the outside, and the philosophy of religion is that if I make the outside clean, that will somehow work into the inside and make the inside clean too. Religion is an outside-in proposition, but that's not what we serve through Christ. Through Christ, we serve an inside-out proposition, that we come to Christ and He makes the inside clean, and as we submit to Christ, He cleans the inside, and then once the inside is clean, the outside takes care of itself. And when this is right, when the inside is right, the rest will be right as well. But God forbid that we should play the part of the hypocrite. And this is the warning for us. The actual Amos chapter 5 warning uh, maybe doesn't touch real close to home for us in Legacy Baptist Church. But as we extend that warning into Isaiah and into Zechariah and into Hosea and into Micah and then here into Matthew 23, this is where the warning gets a little bit closer to home. God forbid that we should put our time and our effort and our priorities upon making our outsides look clean while allowing our insides to run amok with rebellion and hypocrisy and disobedience and pride and anger and selfishness and resentments and unforgiveness and the like. God forbid that we should convince ourselves that somehow we can manipulate God's favor by doing outward expressions of devotion, be that going to church or reading our Bibles or doing good works or dressing a certain way or listening to or not listening to or watching or not watching, but leave the inner man to rot in the filth of his own sinful choices. Simply doesn't work that way, Christian. It's a wonderful thing, outward expressions of worship. I don't think anybody here would argue that outward expressions of worship are in themselves a positive good. It's a good thing that we've gathered together this evening. It's a good thing that we have sung hymns unto the Lord. It is a good thing that we give unto the Lord of the fruit of our labor and that we give unto the Lord of the fruit of, of that which He has multiplied to us as we talked about in Sunday, uh, Sunday morning last week. It's a good thing when we spend our time in prayer and Bible reading. It's a good thing when the first Sunday of every month we partake together in the Lord's table. These are good things. They're positive goods in our life. But they are only worship, Christian. Only true worship. If those outward expressions that we are engaged in are expressions of that which you have in your heart are expressions of the obedience, the submission, and the humility that you have in your heart to the Lord. They are only of value to the degree that they draw you through their external means to an internal state of abiding. And as, and as expressions of that internal state. Outside of that, they become somewhat backhanded, don't they? It's not fun when you have someone that is kind to you, smiles at you, and talks well, at you, well about you to your face, only to talk ill about you behind your back. It's not fun when somebody pretends to be kind to you, but it's actually a backhanded kindness. It's not as impacting 
when someone is generous to you only to find out that the thing that they presumably were generous to you was not generosity at all. That you thought that they gave something to you, but in fact they had to give it to you. They were told to give it to you. Or if they didn't give it to someone, then it would, they'd be saddled with it. So they just gave it to you to get it out of their house. Maybe it's still a nice thing. Maybe it's not. But it kind of reduces the impact of the, the value of that thing when you realize that it was given by compulsion or through uh, uh, nefarious means or, or, or to manipulate you in some way, shape, or form. It can almost be odious, offensive, that someone would try to manipulate you in that way. And that's the idea. The solution to this problem is not to stop offering God external worship. It's to make sure that our heart is aligned with it, the external worship, in, in integrity. And Jesus would say that very thing a few verses back. We read Matthew 23, verses 25 and 26. In Matthew 23, 23, notice what Jesus said. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Same idea. For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. Notice this last phrase. These ought ye to have done and not to leave the others undone. Jesus did not tell them, stop tithing of the mint and the anise and the cumin. Stop tithing of even the little things that you gain. You go out to your garden and you have a, a little bit of mint there and you say, ah, mint. And you take 10% of that and you give that to the Lord in one way, shape, or form. Uh, it's a little bit um, extreme, right? You're, you're tithing the very smallest things, but that in and of itself is not bad. He says, it's not that you should not tithe of even the littlest things in your life. It's that you should not do so and omit, omit the way to your matters of the law. You shouldn't say that because I'm tithing of even the smallest little increase in my life, that that means I can get away with ignoring justice, judgment, mercy, faith. Acts of worship and religious devotion are good, Christian in their proper place. Only as a true and abiding expression of the worship that is already in your heart through obedience. And it was this principle which God confronted the nation about in Amos 5. Now again, the Amos 5 principle was empty worship in a slightly different way. The Amos 5 principle was empty worship through false worship. The principle that we warn about in the church is empty worship through true worship done falsely. Done with a false heart. And so the question now falls on you and I this evening. Is this you? Have you, have we at Legacy Baptist Church become vain in our own worship? I'm not convinced that the manner in which we're worshiping externally is a problem per se. I think that, again, we've nailed that down pretty well. But what about the manner in which we are engaged in it? Are the external expressions of religious devotion which we perform genuine expressions? Not just genuine in that we genuinely think they're good, but expressions that are aligned externally with what is in our heart internally. Is your heart full of sin and you're relying upon all of these external expressions to cover up that fact? Cover it up before men? Perhaps even to cover it up in the eyes of God? 
Are your expressions true expressions of obedience and of faith and of mercy and of love, or are they cheap substitutes intended to impress or convince, but not actually to worship? We operate in a church tradition which values external traditions and expressions of faith. Maybe not as much as some others, but we still have value there. Being present in church, being engaged in elevated worship, presenting ourselves before the Lord, oftentimes in elevated attire, setting standards which are higher than many, even in the broader church around us. And none of this, again, is a bad thing in and of itself by any means. But it is only as good, Christian, as the heart with which you do it. It is only as good as the extent to which it is actually an expression of worship from your heart, backed by a spirit of true love for God, reflective of your devotion to the weightier matters of Christ, to love God with all our hearts, souls, and mights, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And if you find yourself this evening operating in a manner which is a little out of balance, perhaps, if you find yourself having a cup that is quite clean on the outside, but maybe a little bit dirty on the inside, If you find yourself doing the externals but faltering in your heart as it relates to faith, would you reorient your life this evening? Would you reorient your mind to getting the inside of the cup clean? Because Christian, if the inside's clean, the outside will follow. Would you recommit your heart to aligning your inward disposition with the outward dispositions? I'm not advocating to you this evening that you stop worshiping externally. No, these things you ought to have done. Let's just make sure that we're not leaving the others undone. Writing our hearts, checking our motives, aligning ourselves with the Lord in true worship, because this is the only worship that God actually accepts. True worship. Worship that comes to Him both in spirit and in truth. And may that be us this evening. Let's... Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.